It's Lisa Salberg, and we are here for an episode of Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. And I'm just getting all of my technical stuff set up here. Today, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Harry Lever. Good morning, Harry. Hi. And I'm going to go over our agenda here in just a moment after I make sure that I can see your questions when they come in. Okay, you should be also seeing our audio screaming on the bottom so you can read us or you can watch us and yep we're live we're good i got my questions here so if you're joining us you can comment at any time and when we get your questions we will address them so um i've been gone for a little while um i got covid so i'm still a little stuffy and i apologize if i have to mute and have a coughing fit but um, thank God I was vaccinated and boosted and got monoclonal antibodies. So yay science for helping me stay out of a hospital. And I encourage you all to get your vaccinations. Um, COVID wasn't fun. Today is um, May 27th, 2022. It's about 11.05 a.m. on the East Coast. So if you're watching us live, you can put your questions below. If you're watching us later or listening to us in podcast world, um, you can send your questions to support at 4hcm.org or call the office at 973-983-7429 or visit us at 4hcm.org online. Um, okay, so there's some of my morning announcements. Um, we are going to be talking about um, medical management and I've asked Dr. Lever to go over a couple of topics today. We're going to touch on beta blockers, the most common drug used in HCM, um, why we use them and why we don't typically like them too much as patients and what we can do to find ones that we tolerate better. So I figured we would start there and we'll also be talking about some other classes of drugs some research and drug quality issues and availability. And that's where we're going to start today. So Dr. Lever, beta blockers. I haven't found a patient yet that jumps up and down for joy that they have to take them, but they do feel better on them typically, but they have annoying side effects. Can you talk about why we use beta blockers in HCM? No, we want to, the, the key thing is particularly for patients with resting or provocable outflow tract obstruction. That's when the mitral valve hits the septum and blocks the blood from going out that you want to decrease the contractility of the heart so it doesn't, it doesn't squeeze too hard. And you also want to slow the heart rate because slowing the heart rate uh, also helps the heart to uh, uh, fill better. It has a better time to fill. So there's more blood going in and then it can be pumped out so that obstruction, particularly provocable obstruction can be reduced. So that, that's important. But the problem is it can cause, main problem is it can cause fatigue. And that's, that's what you have to be careful about. And, and but, you know, uh, for many years we've used these drugs. Unfortunately, as strange as it seems, for as long as we've used them, there have not been a lot of studies looking at them. And that's, that's, that's kind of a strange, strange thing. It may be because you know, we didn't have these uh, centers of excellence for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and people weren't organized to, to do all that. And I think that, that I realize that there are newer drugs coming out, but, you know, it still may be reasonable to, 
even think about of a study where you do do it with some beta blockers and also compare them to what we've already been using. And but I think part of it is we just didn't have enough centers to to do the studies. We fix that problem and we continue to work on right, it. Right. Right. Um, so typically, um, metropolol or toprol is the most commonly prescribed beta blocker in the HCM world. Um, it's also, I think, the ninth most commonly prescribed drug in the United States right now. So it's a common drug, um, but it's not always the right beta blocker for somebody because of some of the side effects can vary. Can you talk about the class of drugs of beta blockers and then what some of the options are patients might want to investigate well, well, if they don't I mean, like one? It's, it's basically, uh, you know, there are a number of them, uh, Natalol, uh, even the old one, Propranolol, and, uh, and, and Atenolol. And we, we tend to want to use drugs these days that are sustained release so that they, they don't go up and go down. You know, you want to be more sustained release. And that, that, that is a, a important thing. And I think that the shorter acting beta blockers, um, Bazopro, you know, is another one we could use, but the shorter acting beta blockers, I don't think are worth using like low pressor. They, they, you got to take three doses a day. So if we can minimize the number of doses you take, that also helps out. Um, we also have to be careful that the manufacturers aren't changed. When, if you've been on one manufacturer, do not let the pharmacy change it. And we've had some very sick patients who got into trouble because the manufacturer was changed. And that's something that we're working on trying to prevent that from happening. The doctors don't even, realize, don't even know. I wouldn't say realize. They're not even told when the manufacturer is changed. That's an important problem for all drugs that we take. If you're stable on whatever you're taking, do not let the pharmacy change the manufacturer. And, and that's, that's a, it's become a very serious problem. So I'm gonna jump down a rabbit hole for just a second here, because <laughs> it's a podcast and we can jump down rabbit holes. So when the Generic Drug Act first became a thing, like the late 80s, 90s, somewhere in that time. 1984. 84. Okay. So when it first came out, we weren't really using sustained release drugs in the 80s, were we? Nope. When did they come into fashion? Oh, I don't know. Probably in the mid to late 90s. So when the Generic Drug Act started, the, the foundation is that the drug must be between like 85 and 125 80 and, 100, 80 and 125. 80 and 100 and, 100 and what? 25. 125 percent of the original, mm -hmm. of the name brand. So the blood levels. The blood levels have to. In 24 to 36 normal volunteers. So if somebody took the, the name brand drug and somebody took the generic brand drug, the people who are taking the name brand are the controls mm -hmm. and the people who are taking the generic, you see how they vary right. and how much of the drug is in their system. Right. And it can be between 80 and 125% of the people taking the actual drug, the, right. the name brand drug. Right. That's a big variability. Too much. Yeah. And 
this was done without the concept of the sustained release molecule that encapsulates the drug to give you slow release. That's right. So who's measuring how well that extended release aspect of the drugs is working and how fast it dissolves into your system or how slowly it dissolves into your system. There's not enough of that going on right now. And the problem we're facing is that about uh, uh, most of our active ingredients are coming from China. And uh, about 40% of our uh, finished generics are coming from India. And as a result, uh, we have a bad quality problem. And there's just been uh, some fraud detected uh, in, in some testing laboratories in India so bad that 100 drugs have been removed by the European version of the FDA. Just got announced within the past week. I didn't so, know that. Yeah, we, so it's a, it's a very serious problem. And that's part of the reason why we may be having trouble with patients on generics, that is, older drugs uh, that, you know, if, if let's suppose you get on a, a, a new drug that's just come out on the market, and we'll just say Mevacamp, that is the drug you get. That is the manufacturer you get. There has been testing and all that. When you get a generic that's made in India, who knows what you get? Well, I'm, I'm going to put a clarifier on that. Made outside of the U.S., where the FDA does not have walk-in right. inspections, they right. have to be scheduled three to six months in advance so they can prepare for a surprise inspection. That's right. And we don't really have oversight. There's no embedded FDA person watching on a daily basis at this point if they're overseas. FDA cannot come knock on the door and say, let us in. Right. Because the laws of their country protect them. And India and China are the biggest producers of generic drugs that are being distributed in the United States. So I think rather than it looking like we're picking on the country of India, the country of China, it's the processes of the generic drug distribution systems and the oversight that we don't have in the United well, on the, States. But, but on, the, on the other hand, European countries, uh, they are inspected better because the agency in Europe is much, much better than, than it is in China or India. So they have that benefit of, of being able to have inspections and and as a matter of fact, if I see drugs coming from Switzerland or Ireland or England, I don't worry too much because they're under the European version of the FDA. So the most common drug used in HCM, as we talked about at the top of the broadcast, is topral or metropolol, right. extended release. That is the most common right. drug, right. probably... 60% to 70% of those I've spoken to over 27 years are on either the generic or the name brand. So the authorized generic, so there's a there's the name brand, there's the authorized generic, which is made in the same factory as the name brand, right. and then there are generics. Right. So the best you can do for affordability and quality, in my opinion, would be an authorized generic right. because it's the same formula. And there has been some change in ownership of the rights to distribute in the United States. We're down the rabbit hole real far on this one, people, from what you get in your bottle and how it gets there and all the people that are involved. So originally, it was owned by AstraZeneca. 
AstraZeneca then went off to company one, I'm not even going to say their name, and they were the authorized generic distributor in the United States for a number of years. They sold to a company called New American Therapeutics, and they held the rights for a period of time, which means they do the contract negotiations with the payers as to if, if they can be on the formulary, et cetera. And they just sold it in April, I think April 9th of 2022 to a company called Melenta, which is actually here in Morristown, New Jersey. And I've got calls into them to ask some questions about uh, availability. They are, I believe, still participating in the Eagle Pharmacy Program, Topral Direct, it was originally called when AstraZeneca, where you can buy a name brand, authorized generic, sorry, um, for $25 a month, then they get $64 for 90 days supply, but that's not with insurance. So I'm waiting to talk to the people at Melenta to see where you can get a script at your local pharmacy and use your insurance to, to get it. So stay tuned to the HCMA website. We'll have some information on that, but that's where you can get an authorized generic of the most common drug that we're using in HCM, Metropolol XL, Topral XL. Um, so Harry, if a beta blocker isn't the answer for somebody, um, what are the alternatives for rate control? What is the role of a calcium you channel a blocker? Ca you can use a calcium channel blocker. And of late, I've tended actually to use more diltiazem than verapamil. There's, uh, it just seems to be a reasonably well-tolerated drug. And, and we had some trouble getting verapamil for a while uh, because it was only made, being made by one Indian manufacturer. So now we've gotten, uh, we've gotten to, uh, I've, I've used more diltiazem and it does come sustained release. And so far it's been okay. I mean, it, again, the, the, this drug, uh, the, this class of drugs, the calcium channel blockers and the beta blockers suffer from the fact that were not huge studies done on them. And they got on, they got, people started using them because we recognized that they worked, but they weren't randomized controlled double blind studies. And that's, that's been a problem. Okay. Um, so if we're not looking at rate control, if we're looking to treat obstruction, we have an, we have another long-term, I'll call it a frenemy drug. Uh, and that is Norpacr or disapiramide long acting. Um, and I call it a frenemy because it works really well for some people. There are some side effects, but getting it has been a problem. Pfizer has gone on shortage alert again. They have been on outages. It wasn't available for six months and all of the drugs were, were um, you couldn't use them for a long time because everything that was available in the United States had expired last June. So like there was literally no active drug that was not out of expiration. Um, so there was literally an outage and people had to shuffle to something else. So um, what does Norpace do that's unique? And it, it, decreases, it decreases the force of contraction and the, so doing de decreases the gradients. Uh, again, there, 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 there's one or two studies. There isn't a large number of uh, studies. It's a little bit better than the other. But the problem with the drug is, particularly in males, is it can cause urinary retention because of problems with the prostate gland. And, you know, it works out that about 60 to 70% of people can probably tolerate the drug, but the other ones can't. And that's, that's a problem. And, and, and uh, 
So we, again, uh, I'm hoping with, as time is going on, we're going to be seeing newer and better things, but we're, you know, we're sort of in a, in an in-between stage right now. So I'm going to jump ahead a topic a little bit here, and that is we're working with um, a company out of Korea, the drug de development company called Celtrion. And we have um, a phase one trial we're working with them on, on a drug that is very similar in compound to disapyramide and the mechanism. And it's actually the most common used drug in, the, um, in Asia Pacific for HCM. It's in their guidelines for treatment, but we don't have it available here in the United States. It's been available there for 30 years. So we're doing a safety study here in the United States. We still have one or two slots open. If anybody has obstruction, they've done well on Norpace, but it, they're worried about the sustainability of that. You can wash out of the Norpace, go into the hospital for six days, get some generous compensation for that week of your time, I'll tell you. Um, and we're doing it in New York right now, so you'd get transport to New York as well. Um, and we have a couple spots. You can call the office and talk to Ross, 973-983-7429, and he can send you the survey, or you can find the survey link online. But we need an alternative to to Norpace. Yes, we'll talk about Mavicampton in a moment, but it's a it's a reasonably priced drug and it works pretty well, but we don't have the availability regularly. So people are now kind of, you know, afraid to go on it if in six months it's not going to be available anymore. So we need something consistent. And, and particularly since it's not sustained release because what they've been selling hasn't been sustained release. And that means you're taking it two to three times a day. Well, if you're taking the generic, the disapyramide generic, that's been available, but that's a three to four times a day dose. Yeah, right, right. That's what I'm saying. It's not yeah. it's a sustained release. It's not yeah. sustained release. So Norpace CR is from Pfizer, and that's the sustained release. Um, I've not seen a generic for the sustained release. Um, I just, you just got diso. So let's talk for a moment about other antiarrhythmics that might be used. Um, so Norpace is actually classified as an antiarrhythmic, but it works for us a little bit differently. So it does treat atrial fibrillation for some, but what else could you do beyond? Well, there's a beta blocker called Sotolol that, that, that sometimes works. And, and it ra ra the, the problem is that it becomes complicated if you go into atrial fibrillation. And I've sort of taken the approach that we have to get a little more active um, thinking about doing surgery earlier if they're, if people have obstruction and they're starting to go into atrial fibrillation uh, because we don't want the heart to get, you know, left, particularly the left atrium to get enlarged because then it becomes much harder to control the, the atrial fibrillation. So, there, you know, once we start seeing the atrial fibrillation, we're not as, you know, wanting to treat it medically. We're trying to, if we can catch it early, you know, you know, unless somebody's come in and they've had it for a long, long time. And then we think about doing some surgical procedures at the same time that we might do a myectomy, but it becomes complicated. And the, the, um, we don't have a good number of, uh, drugs. I mean, there, there were, there are some really old drugs. One is quinidine and there's a pronestal, that can sometimes treat that. There's another drug, flecainide, but it it they're just not as good as we'd like to see them. No, I 
and, and they can have some serious side effects as right. well. Um, right. Obviously, there's the Mac Daddy, and that's amiodarone. Right. Um, but it's and really that, hard to manage long term. Uh, well, yeah, you don't, you've got to use the lowest dose possible so you don't get into troubles with the thyroid and the liver and the lungs. You, you've got to be very careful with that drug. I mean, it, it's unfortunate. It is really a good drug for arrhythmias. There is no question about it. It's the horrendous side effects that are bad. It's just really unfortunate. And there was, I'm blocking on the name right now. There was a drug that had come out uh, a number of years ago with the thought. Huh? Maltac. Maltac. That's right. And it just, it just wasn't as good as AMEO. It didn't have the side effects, but it wasn't as good. So it's mm -hmm. not, it never really took off very well. So we have amiodarone, we have sodalol, we have um, some other antiarrhythmics that are not as commonly used. Right. What about um, sodium channel blockers, like Rhythmodan or um, Renolazine? I'm not that familiar with them, to be honest with you. Yeah, they, they, that was what the Eleclizine drug line was for um, the Liberty HCM study that didn't really pan out to do much. Right. But um, we typically are using this in individuals with, um, they'll have a little chest pain, more so like microvascular disease. Um, it'll work there a little bit, but it doesn't really, I've not found it to be really, really helpful and it's kind of fallen out of favor. So one other class I do want to talk about because it's a tricky one, um, actually two, um, diuretics. It's a love-hate relationship with diuretics and HCM. Can you explain well, why it's you, you have to be you have to be careful with diuretics that you, if on the one hand you have symptoms of heart failure and you do have some fluid retention, you want to get rid of it. But what what can happen is if you take too much fluid out, the cavity can get smaller and you can get more worsening obstruction. So you, it's about, you have to balance the two. And the, that is, uh, you know, how much you want to take off and, and, and not to take too much. I mean, it's just that kind of a problem. But I mean, sometimes you really need the diuretics, but we try to use the smallest dose possible. And if you're starting to show signs of heart failure, and if you have resting or a provocable obstruction, that's a sign that we need to think about surgery. If on the other hand, you have non-obstructive disease, then that, you know, we've got to watch very carefully you know, that we don't, you know, that we, that sometimes can be an early sign that the heart's really getting into trouble and you may be starting to advance towards a heart transplant. So you have to just, you know, we got to watch very carefully what we're doing. And I think um, a, a cautionary tale that I, I give on what's coming up to a, a rough time for like grieving in my family. Um, my dad passed away at the beginning of June. So I'm always thinking of him around now. My dad started using diuretics very early in life um, to man manage what he thought was hypertension, but it turned out he was taking it for HCM. Um, and he used diuretics for a long time. And in the end, it killed his kidneys. So my, my dad didn't die from hypertrophic cardiomyopathy as the main cause. It was kidney disease and kidney failure. And he had been using a lot of diuretics for a long time. So you really want to be aware of the fact that the body can only tolerate so much. And these, some of these meds do have downstream consequences that you might not be thinking about in the short term. So, and this, this also brings up the point again of the generic drugs. Mm -hmm. If the 
diuretic they give you doesn't work very well, and I've had that happen, and you start pushing the dose, that's a problem. And, you know, and the other problem is, let's suppose, again, you're stable on one brand. Don't let them change them to something else that may not work as well. I, I had that happen with a number of patients, and one of them in particular was was written up in a Bloomberg article. It was very, very serious problem. And so uh, I, I think the key here is if you're going to do a generic drug and I am on a generic drug for my anti-rejection medicine because the name brand is like eight times the price. And if I have to do it, my insurance company will, but they obviously want to push back for the cheaper. And I get it. We all want to be cost effective, but I got switched from one brand to another. And because I know that they aren't all the same, I went for blood work and this is a leveling drug. So you can see it in your system. And I dropped below therapeutic on this particular manufacturer. Now I've talked to other people who have always been on that manufacturer and that's what they're dosed to. And it works for them because they know their dose, but my drop, mine dropped off way much. So I would have had to have upped the dose if I stayed on them. And then if I went back to the other brand, my dose would have been too high and that causes, in, in my case, a shaking, a, a, a bumpy voice, because you're, you're literally shaking from, that, from being overdosed on anti-rejection. So it's really important for some drugs to stay at the same level and make sure you're getting consistency. So always check your manufacturer. If you don't know, ask your pharmacist, what's the manufacturer of my metropolol? Most people just stop it. Okay, it's a beta blocker. It's this type, it's metropolol, and that's where you end. The next question you always need to ask is, who made it? Don't, don't go down to your no more tablets when you go to the drugstore. Have a couple of old ones so you can compare them to the new ones, that they look the same. Do not, and there's always a number on the tablet. Make sure the color, the shape, and the number are the same. Don't let them change it on you. And if they do change it, make a note, new manufacturer, this, monitor how you feel. If you notice your symptoms are coming back, then you want to say, okay, there's not, a, I'm not getting dosed properly here. And you need to talk to your physician and you need to talk to your pharmacist and you need to make it very clear. I do better on that brand. That's what I'm dosed to. That their menu, it's not really brand, it's manufacturer. I do better on that manufacturer and that's what I want to stay on. Can you get me one of those manufacturers? You might have to go to a different pharmacy if that pharmacy doesn't carry it anymore. The one we've seen the most problem with, sorry, dudes, but Dr. Reddy. Oh. The quality has been so inconsistent that I just say stay away from it because you never Absolutely. know what you're doing. Well, they, they, they are a fairly large drug company, but have had so many violations against them. We call them 483s. I cannot understand why the... FDA continues to let them sell drugs in this country. They should not be allowed to sell anything. And it's in your little, opinion, in my opinion, well, it's the and, and, it's, and maybe some others share that. Yes, that's right. Okay, so I want to pivot for a minute to the new drugs that are coming out, and I will give a broadcasting update here. Come back in forty-five minutes and join me back here where I will be with Dr. Stephen Heitner and Dr. Daniel Jacoby 
You formerly know them as HCMA, Recognized Center of Excellence Directors, who have now fled to cytokinetics to help with drug discovery. And they have some exciting news to share with you about what's going on with Affie Campton. And just stay tuned and come back for, for that session later on today. Um, but Harry, we got Mavic Hampton out now. We've got a REMS program that's going to try to make this safe. Um, do, does anybody really believe that myectomies are never going to be needed again? Or is there a role for Mavic Hampton and a role for a strong surgical program? Sure. You need, you need both. I mean, you can't just, it's, you can't just treat people with drugs. I mean, there's the, the anatomy can get into a situation where you, you don't have a, a choice, particularly, you know, uh, if the obstruction is severe. If, if one of the things that we really have to watch are people as they go through puberty, um, they, they can thicken their heart. And you got to keep an eye on that kind of stuff. And over time, you know, the heart can change. So there, there's some people you, they'll, you know, you always need people being able to do myectomies. Uh, sometimes things happen to the mitral valve, and there's a debate about how often that occurs. But you know, we have always felt that you know there's about these 20% of people who have who have problems with their mitral valve, and Mavacampton is not going to take care of that. So you have okay. to, you have to, you sort of have to, you know, but everybody has to be looked at carefully and decide, you know, we need more experience with Mevacampton. We, you know, we need to see, you know, how it works in, in different kinds of people. But I would say there are probably some people with certain structures that Mevacampton won't work and you're going to need surgery. So they still need good surgeons. I, I completely agree with that. So we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about Mavic Hampton today because we've been spending a lot of time talking about it. And you can go look at previous broadcasts um, or listen to them and um, you'll learn more there. And we're going to be doing a full segment just on Mava, including the patient assistance program and how to get access through some other foundation partnerships we've created. Um, so we've got that. Um, research, again, the Embryo study and the Celtrion study are still available. Go look at that. I wanted to, to kind of spend the next you know, 10 minutes or so talking about um, a new organization that I'm becoming aware of and that you've been doing some work with called Americans for Safe Drugs. Right. Can you tell me a little bit about what their focus is and what you've been doing with them? Well, they've recognized that we have a problem with our drug supply and they're going out and trying to put out the word that there's a problem. And that things need to that that the FDA needs some help to get things turned around. Right now, the FDA is in a lot of difficulty, uh, and you know it's. I realize we're talking about drugs, but right now we have a very severe problem in this country with baby food formula. Yeah, and it just has not been handled well. I had the opportunity to listen to two hearings, yes, to a Senate hearing and a House of Representatives hearing the day before. And it's a very severe problem. And it's just symptomatic of the problems that the FDA is having, and they really need a lot of help. And we're hoping that the new commissioner will, will be able to get some things turned around. But it's, a, it's, a, it's very severe. And you know, one, one problem right now has been with the, with the pandemic, there have been no live um, inspections overseas because People don't want to travel. Two years now, and they're using Zoom to do Zoom to do uh, inspections. Really, I don't know how you can go into that because 
uh, you know, uh, I mean, there's some really bad things that happen in some of these manufacturing plants overseas. Although the Abbott plant here uh, with the baby food was not so good either. You know, they found water on the floor, re leaking roofs, uh, bacteria, all kind of stuff. So it's, it's they got a problem. And, you know, making drugs is not easy. And you've got to be up on it all the time, inspecting, checking, making sure that nothing bad is happening. And if the truth should be known, I believe that every batch of drugs before they're sold should go under a testing program and make sure that the drugs are safe because batch to batch, there can be variations. We're not doing that. That has never been done except for one laboratory in New Haven, Connecticut, called Valisher, and they test drugs, and that that has to be expanded. They have to, it has to everything that we swallow for medicine has had to have had some sort of a test to make sure it's stable, and that's not going on. So while it's not prescription drugs, um, I saw recently that Costco has a new policy for their vitamins that they're checking batches to make sure they're actually what they say that they are. Um, because we know that that's the wild west. Nobody looks at supplements. No. So I was really happy to hear that. And I would encourage you to use supply. Another brand that has a USP label on it now. That's, I can't remember the name exactly, but there's a brand that I've seen sold in, like in the CVS, that, that depending on which vitamin, there's a USP that they go by the USP protocol. So that's Can you a little. Explain bit, what the USP protocol is. It's a. It's a. It's a. It's a um, organization that they get together how they think the drugs should be made, and they're written. They're written down, and you have to follow their criteria. But still, gotta be inspected. Each brand needs to be inspected. One of the biggest problems has happened. If you think about this pandemic, and there was a big problem in getting shipping into this country. Well, a lot of these drugs were sitting in container ships. Overheating. What, what was overheating and all that kind of stuff, you know. Moisture. That's right. All that stuff. And it needs to be, when it comes in off that ship somewhere, we got to test it. You know, if you go to a food plant, now forget the for a minute the problem with the baby food, but a lot of food plants are testing for bad things, bacteria and stuff like that. And I, I, but that, that transportation is a major, major problem. And, you know, uh, so we need to know how things are being transported. And right now, you don't always know that. That's why you test it. Yeah, we learned that with the distribution of the first Pfizer vaccine for COVID, they had to be packaged with liquid nitrogen to keep it at a certain temperature. And some other drugs may not be as sensitive as that one was. But you still don't want, if you always have labels that say don't store over a certain temperature, but we let them sit in a container for two, three months baking in the sun. You want to know what happened to it. That's right. Okay. So this organization is looking at supply chain issues. Right. Um, we know now you've got a baby formula shortage. That was a problem that we had in the United States. So it's not going to be a panacea to have a manufacturing brought back to the United States all the time. But I think it would be a good start if we had more drug manufacturers on soil here in the United States where inspectors could walk in or be embedded and, and be there to help. Nobody wants a bad batch out there. 
Nobody wants that. But you need some oversight because if you do make a big batch, that's a lot of money and a lot of time. And to throw it away from a business point of view and you're like, eh, maybe if I just don't look, I don't have to tell. So I think we just need everybody to want to put the best quality product out there, keep their facilities as clean as possible. I think maybe we've gotten a little bit lazy. Like, well, is it really important to to clean every little thing? Can we do it once a week instead of once a day? Like we need, we need to know that everything is that's going in our body was produced in, in a pure way. We don't want carcinogens. We don't want dust, mites, et cetera, to, to show up in our meds and in our body. Ugh. That's right. Ugh. That's so right. we have another shortage that affects the cardiac community right now. You want to talk about that? The contrast? Oh, yeah. That's a very bad problem. It turns out that there are two manufacturers of uh, contrast material. That's the stuff that we use when we're going to do a CT scan or a coronary angiogram. And one of them is in Shanghai, China. Well, Shanghai, China has been closed down because of the pandemic. So nothing has gotten out. And about half the hospitals in this country have been using the Shanghai version. The other one comes out of, uh, I believe it's Italy, uh, that they, I, that this stuff has been made and that is not a problem. But when you cut your supply in half, you got a major problem. And uh, unfortunately, I've been told, and I haven't seen all the documents, but there is another Chinese plant that is not well rated that the FDA has gone to to get emergency use of contrast agent. This I've heard from some sources, and that's not wise. So I don't quite know what's going to happen. We're hoping that Shanghai might open for now, but we have got to make contrast agent in this country. They're looking at it. It's gone to the White House. This is a very severe problem when you think about it. Most patients, when they go to a hospital these days, need some sort of a, con a test that uses a contrast agent. And to have a shortage and, and to have uh, certain patients have to wait to get their studies because, well, you know, they need follow-up studies. So all we're going to do is emergency studies. Well, you know, how long are you going to wait to do your follow-up study? That's no good. Yeah, so. I have a CT angiogram scheduled for the end of June. And I don't know that I'm going to actually be able to get it. And I'm six months late. I should have had it done in, in February. So, right, right. you know, we use them in heart transplant um, to look at the graft sites and to, to look for coronary artery disease that can be fatal. Right. Um, so it's kind of important that I get this test done. Right. And um, don't know if I'm going to be able to or not. Right. And this so. is very severe. We should not be depending on foreign countries for making something as important as a contrast engine. There's no excuse for that. I agree. I agree. Um, so it's an issue. Uh, I'm going to tell people that the HCMA's Legislative Advocacy Committee um, met this week to discuss this and other issues. And um, obviously, we're working on our HCM Act. You can learn more about that online. But we are going to put together a statement about the supply chain issues that are impacting the cardiovascular community as a whole and HCM specifically patients. Um, so we're going to be putting together a piece on that and we're going to set it up as a, uh, as a petition that you can send to your elected officials 
to warn them that this problem is mounting. It's not getting better, that it needs their attention. It needs legislative action. We need to ensure inspection of sites. We need to ensure inspection of products coming in. We need to know that what we're buying is actually what we think we're buying. If you think you're buying 25 milligrams of Topril, that's what you should be getting. You shouldn't be getting 25 at 80% potency because that's not 25. So it's a consumer affairs issue. It's a regulatory issue. It's a healthcare issue. It's a human issue. And we all need to care about it. Nobody wants to get a drug that isn't what they intend to take. And we don't know what's in all of these drugs. And a lot of them work really well, even at 80%. But wouldn't it be nice if it was consistent and you actually knew what you were paying for? Okay, imagine this for just a second. You go to this store and you buy lawn furniture. And it comes with a table and six chairs. And you get home and there's only five chairs because you didn't get the whole thing. <laughs> it's like buying a drug that's not full potency. You want what you paid for. You want what you need. You get six people in the family. You need those six chairs. So let's just not politicize this, but looking at it from a regulatory point of view, how do we all make sure we're all getting what we want, need, deserve, and are paying for? There's, it's broken. We need to fix it. Right. Wow, I was on my high horse there, sorry. <laughs> no, it needs to be done. It needs to be done. Um, okay, Harry, I'm going to wrap up in just a minute. Um, we've just had a couple comments throughout the session. If anybody has any questions, um, join late. Uh, the contrast, no, this is not the same contrast. So the question is, I'm sorry, um, is this the contrast that you use in an MRI? This is not gadolinium. That is what's used no. in MRI. That is an okay supply. This is a particular contrast agent that is used to detect. As far as we know at this time, I've got to look that up, to be honest with you. I'm not sure where it's coming from. I don't it's know where gadolinium is coming from. No, 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 but it's not the same one that, that and so no. far I've not heard of a problem. No, I've not heard of a problem there either, but right. it is conceivable that it could happen in the future if we're not prepared. Right. I don't even know how many people are manufacturing gadolinium. I don't either. It can't be many because it's. One, one of the problem. one of the problems in this, country that has to be addressed is the supply chain. We need more people making uh, different things. We, we can't just be dependent upon one person and one company. That's a very serious problem. Let's suppose you have a tornado or you have a hurricane or something like that and you get shut down. That's a bad problem. We Believe it or not, a couple of years ago, there was a shortage of normal IV fluid, normal saline because there was a hurricane in Puerto Rico and we were making a lot of our fluids there. And where did we have to get it from? Mexico. Well, Mexico is not necessarily known for having the cleanest water. And a lot of work has to be done to purify the, 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 the IV fluids if you're gonna make it there. So we need, more, we need more companies making more things for this country in this country. We need redundancy. That's right. You know, it's. Your, your cable company understands redundancy, that your, your lines are redundant all over the place. So if one breaks down, you can get your internet the other way and you're not down. If we can create redundancy right. for internet and other services, you know, I, I, I'm not sure if it's still true, but like 10 years ago, I was looking at something that we don't produce a Band-Aid in this country anymore. That could be true. 
I think they were all coming out of Mexico at 90% that point. 90% of our ibuprofen is coming from China. Most of our aspirin is coming from China. You don't want to be doing that. We need to have that here. Here. That's right. That's right. You, know, you, you mentioned natural disasters, which are increasing. Um, but we also have, you know, the next virus. Right. You know, it, I don't think we're going to, you know, we're, we're still in COVID. This is a big issue. But go back to 1918, you know, the influenza. It happens. It's, it's, it happens. It's humanity. Yep. We have viruses. Yep. And it could shut things down. We've seen that. And we want to make sure that we're not going to lose the medicines that we've worked so hard to develop, implement. We know who needs what. We want to make sure people are feeling well. We need to make sure that it's there. I'm going to wrap up here with a comment that's not really about medical management, May. It's about mental health, May, which um, is an initiative that's been going on around the country over the past um, month. Um, because I was down with COVID, I have not been able to speak about it too much. So I apologize uh, because it is important. And I've become aware of a fantastic new program by the federal government. Um, I think Ross can post it um, here and we're going to put the link on um, our website so you can get all this information. But there is now a, um, I forget the name of it. Um, it's, a, it's a governmental agency for mental health and substance abuse support. And I actually called them today to get an understanding of what the program was. No matter your insurance status or what state you live in, they have resources available for all mental health services. They don't do therapy, but they can link you with a service that might do therapy or have a project or a program available in your area, not only for mental health issues, but for substance abuse. And we know that alcohol and tobacco and food as a substance um, and issues that are addictive have kind of gone unchecked over the past two years through the pandemic because we've all been locked in. So I want to make sure that we just take a moment and acknowledge that people with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy also have mental health needs, also have substance abuse issues that they need to deal with. And for those with HCM, it's a little more important not to let their substance abuse issues get out of control because your heart is damaged by other agents and you're asking more of it. So there's a new page on the website that will give you the link to this service and you can call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, English and Spanish. Um, I was really impressed with the level of their services. So I just wanted to make sure you all knew about it because it's a fantastic service. And I actually like seeing our government dollars doing something smart in the space of mental health and substance abuse. And I think this is a great program. So um, I will leave it there. Harry, thank you for joining me once again. Appreciate all your comments and feedback, as do our audience. Um, and Deborah, I'm not sure what you're talking about, which trial, um, but all trials are available for adults only. Sorry, I'm just she's asked about 16-year-old. Um, there's no clinical trials in PEDS right now. I'm working on that. Hang with me. So I'm going to go and I'm going to come back in about a half an hour um, with our other guests talking about cytokinetics and the Affie-Campton trials. Harry, thanks. Have you enjoyed this episode of Tales from the Heart? We hope so. Please visit us at 4hcm.org. Become a member, become a donor, become a volunteer. Great news, everybody. HCM Academy is now available online. What is it? It includes online sessions, learning about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, patient stories about HCM and their management, and 
an opportunity to join online live with an HCM specialist to go over the slides, ask questions, and dig deeper into your understanding and knowledge of HCM. All CME courses are free and you can find them at 4hcm.org or at thehcmacademy.com. The Big Hearted Warrior Tour continues. For the latest dates, please check 4hcm.org. And thanks to our sponsors, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Cytokinetics, Invitae, and Boston Scientific. Did you know discussion groups are available at 4hcm.org? Monday through Friday, almost every day you can find a discussion group. Whether you're interested in learning more about ICDs, premyectomy, screening your family, there's a discussion group for you. Even if you just want to learn how to balance your mental health, we have that too. So please join us for one of our live discussion groups moderated by a peer volunteer and you can sign up in advance at 4hcm.org. Just check the calendar for events. Please contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association at 4hcm.org or by calling our office at 973-983-7429. You can contact the HCMA by email at support at 4hcm.org. Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the HCMA, is made possible through sponsorship from Boston Scientific, Cytokinetics, Tanaya, Invitae, and Boston Scientific.